Acts 23 this evening. And we'll begin reading from verse 1. Acts 23, verse 1. It says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And they that stood by him, uh, sorry, and they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest. Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find that no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for the opportunity to be here, to come and to worship you, to sing praise to your name, and Lord, to gather around your word and to seek to learn from the truths contained therein. Lord, I pray that this evening you would empower me through the Spirit, that you would give me wisdom and guidance to speak. That Lord, indeed, it would be your words, your, your thoughts, Lord. That, Lord, you would uh, challenge us this evening, you would refresh us through your word, uh, teach us, instruct us, Lord, we pray. And may, Lord, you receive all the glory, honor, and praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Now, of course, last Sunday evening, we looked at the first part here of Paul's pre-trial before the Sanhedrin. We saw he was brought in before the Sanhedrin by the, the chief captain, and the reason for that was he's trying to get to the bottom of uh, the situation. He's trying to find out what it is that Paul is accused of. He still doesn't know what it is that exactly he's, he's done to offend the Jews so much. And so he brings him before the Sanhedrin. And we saw Paul stand up before the Sanhedrin and in verse 1 he makes that bold declaration. He says, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And we talked about conscience last week and what exactly Paul's saying there. But the high priest Ananias, he reacted with anger. He didn't agree with Paul's assessment that he had lived with a good conscience. And so he called upon those who were closest to smite Paul on the mouth. And we saw how this was an unlawful act. It was a, against the law of God for them to do this without a fair trial, a fair hearing. And so Paul reacted with anger. 
He reacted with anger at the injustice of it all, at the wickedness of the council. And he responded by calling the high priest a whited wall and saying that God, God was going to smite him, God was going to judge him. Basically, he was accusing him of hypocrisy. And he declared that God is going to judge you for your sin. It was at that point that it was pointed out to Paul that the one he had just spoken against was the high priest. The one he had insulted was the high priest. And so Paul was quick to, to apologize and to rebuke himself uh, for speaking so disrespectfully. Look in verse 5, it says, Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And so Paul was quick to apologize. He quickly realized his mistake, that he shouldn't have spoken against the office with such disrespect. He acknowledged that you know, the respect is due under the office, no matter who holds the position. That brings us now to the second part of this pre-trial uh, before the Sanhedrin. And we see, first of all, this evening, Paul's appeal. Paul's appeal there in verse 6. It says, But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. <clears throat> Excuse me. In verse 6, the, the scene basically takes a really abrupt turn. It sort of takes an abrupt turn here. And we read that Paul perceives that one part of the, sorry, one part were Sadducees and the other part, Pharisees. And in, re, in response here, he seems to set about to cause a division, uh, to divide its members, to divide the Sanhedrin, by appealing to his heritage as a Pharisee and also to his belief in the resurrection. And, you know, the question that immediately comes to mind here is, was this a ploy? Was this a, a tactic by Paul to simply get the focus off him? Now, was he see, simply doing this to get them to start fighting with one another so that he could be let off, so he might be released? And indeed, many of the commentators are of that opinion, uh, that somehow Paul assessed the situation... You know, after his experience in the first five verses there, that he's assessed the situation and he's realized that he basically has no hope of getting a fair trial. He has no hope of getting anywhere with the council. And so he changes tactic and deliberately seeks to divide the council here with this appeal. Now, the commentator Wearsby is of this opinion. He writes, if the trial had continued, he might well have been condemned and taken out and stoned as a blasphemer. No, the wisest thing to do was to end the hearing as soon as possible and trust God to use the Roman legions to protect him from the Jews. And so this is the opinion of many, that Paul is basically here seeking to divide them, seeking to throw them off, off him, basically, and get them to fight amongst each other so he might be released. And, you know, while this is indeed a distinct possibility it doesn't seem to really fit well with what we know about Paul. Well, at least it doesn't to me. You know, it doesn't portray Paul here as someone acting in faith, does it? It doesn't really portray him as someone who's trusting God to protect him. You know, in the chapters before this, Paul would never have backed down from an opportunity to stand up and to 
declare his faith. I mean, just before this, when the angry mob has beaten him and he's been led up the steps to the fortress Antonia, what does he do? He says, can I speak? He turns around and addresses the mob. These angry mob who want to kill him, want to stone him to death, want to beat him to death. So it doesn't seem to really fit with what we've just seen about Paul in the previous chapter, that somehow now he would turn tail and run. I mean, that's really what they're suggesting here. And so there is, however, another position, and it seems to me to make more sense. You see, Paul's appeal here seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't it? You know, verse 6 seems to be without context, that all of a sudden he makes this appeal that he's a Pharisee, you know, and that he believes in the resurrection, and it seems to come out of nowhere. And it would seem, therefore, that something has happened, that something has happened, something has taken place to cause Paul to make this appeal to being a Pharisee and believing in the resurrection. Uh, The commentator Williams, he says this, something must have happened to bring these divisions to his attention. In this connection, we should keep in mind that the narrative is probably highly condensed and that Paul may have been speaking for some time. And indeed, we mentioned it last week, the fact that Luke has condensed this account here. Okay, he started out in verse 1 with Paul speaking, and most likely Paul didn't start out by speaking. It was the Sanhedrin had discussed things first. Before they sailed, how do you, what do you say? What do you say in defense of yourself? And so Luke has condensed this account of what takes place here in this pre-trial hearing. And so it's not unreasonable to assume that between verse 5 and 6, there is a time lapse. There has been more said between the two verses and verse 9 seems to allude to this fact because in verse 9 the pharisees make mention of a spirit or angel speaking to paul look in verse 9 it says and there arose a great cry and the scribes that were of the pharisees part arose and strove saying we find no evil in this man but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him let us not fight against god And so this seems to suggest to us that Paul has been able to give his testimony. Paul has gone back through the events leading on the road to Damascus, leading up to him meeting Christ, the resurrected Lord. And it may be that when Paul gets to this point in his testimony, he mentions the resurrected Christ, that the assembly becomes unruly and disruptive. He mentions that this one appeared to him. In verse 6, it says that he had to cry out to be heard. It says... But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council. Again, the words cried out there suggest he has to speak loudly to be heard. Why does he have to raise his voice all of a sudden to be heard? Well, again, it seems that there's a bit of disruption going on because of what Paul's just said. And indeed, if this is so, if he has been able to give his testimony and he's spoken about meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus, this gives us some context to verse 6, doesn't it? It gives us some context then as to why all of a sudden it says Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and one part Pharisees. You see, now it would have been abundantly clear to Paul who is who. Okay, again, remember he's been away from Jerusalem for a period of time. He wouldn't have known every member of the Sanhedrin. And so now after he's mentioned this, it's abundantly clear. Okay, these guys are Sadducees. These guys are Pharisees. It's pretty clear now he can perceive which group is which. It would have been immediately clear who was on each side. In verse 8, Luke goes on to explain why that's so. 
Okay, in verse 8 he says, uh, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. In verse 8, Luke explains to us that the Sadducees denied the resurrection and they denied the spirit realm. They believed that when someone died, the soul died with them. That's it. That's the end. Basically, they didn't believe in the eternal state of man. In Mark chapter 12, Christ had a similar discussion with the Sadducees about the resurrection. Uh, They confronted him. They asked him questions about the resurrection. Uh, Let's just turn there, Mark chapter 12. Verse 24, we'll start in verse 23, but Christ tells them they're wrong because they don't understand the Scriptures. In verse 23 it says, In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. Christ says to them, you know, you err, in your understanding of the resurrection, because you don't know the Scriptures. You don't know the Scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You see, the Sadducees, they only accepted the Pentateuch as being the Word of God. The first five books, they, they only accepted, accepted them as being authoritative. Anything else was not seen as being the Word of God. It was deemed unscriptural. And so obviously, they didn't see the resurrection in that volume. They didn't see the resurrection in the Pentateuch taught anywhere. You know, as we read on in Mark chapter 12, we see that Christ points out to them that the Pentateuch did indeed teach the resurrection. Look in verse 25, it says, For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven, and as touching the dead, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham? and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but, of the, God, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. In verse 26, you know, God speaks as if he's having an ongoing relationship with the patriarchs. You know, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he speaks about as if they're still alive, because they are alive. And that's the point here. <clears throat> that's what Christ is pointing out. He says, you know, Um, God himself, God the Father, speaks about a relationship with the patriarchs. And in verse 27, Christ's conclusion is that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so this was the the position of the Pharisees. And Christ said they greatly erred because they didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in the, the spirit realm. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in it. As it says there in... Acts 23 and verse 6 at the end, uh, sorry, uh, verse 8 at the end there, it says, but the Pharisees confess both. The Pharisees confess both. They believe in the resurrection and the spiritual realm. And Josephus, uh, that historian, records for us that the Pharisees believed that those who had lived virtuously would have power to revive and live again. Indeed, the resurrection was one of their core beliefs. Okay, if you were talking about the Pharisees and what they believed, the resurrection is one of the core beliefs they held to. And Paul now makes this appeal here to this essential doctrine, the resurrection, because it's a belief that he held, held in common with them. Okay, he believes in the resurrection. 
And that's why Paul declares here in verse 6, he says, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am called in question. Paul makes this appeal now. He says, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And he says, it's because of the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm here in question. You know, in what way could Paul declare himself to be a Pharisee? You know, is, is this an untrue statement? Well, the answer is no. You see, Paul isn't claiming by this that he still belonged to this group. He's not saying that he still is a Pharisee. But rather, he's saying that he shares the same eternal hope that they did. That's what he's saying. That's what he's declaring. You see, it's obvious that Paul's Christian beliefs align much more closely with the Pharisees than the Sadducees, don't they? Okay? The Pharisees are a lot closer to accepting the truth than the Sadducees are. Because the Pharisees at least believe in the resurrection of the dead. You see, Paul had come to realize, but, that the means of the resurrection was the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was the first fruits of the resurrection. And so Paul no doubt desired these Pharisees to likewise see that Christ is the answer. He wants wants them to see that Christ is the means of the resurrection. You know, Paul's appeal here to the Pharisees is no accident. It's not a ruse. It's Paul appealing to them and saying, I believe in the resurrection. And that's how I met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He's resurrected. That's his appeal here. He wants them to understand that the resurrection is a core, central belief of the Christian, the believer. His faith rests in Christ. And and when Paul says here that he's there called in question for these things, he's not lying, is he? That is the reason he's called in question. That is the reason I don't like the Christian faith, because he believes in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what takes place here. That's why Paul makes this appeal to be a Pharisee. He's saying, I believe like you do in the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead. We see secondly now the arguments. So Paul has made this appeal. And now we see the argument. Look in verse 7. It says, When he had said so, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the multitude was divided. You know, the result of this appeal is that there is now a, an argument that breaks out in the Sanhedrin. We read here in verse 7 that there arose a dissension, an argument, a dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're now arguing amongst themselves. It says the multitude is divided. The council is divided. It's very clear who's on one side and who's on the other. And they're, they're throwing words back and forth at each other. There's a great deal of shouting and arguing going on. In verse 9 it says, and there arose a great cry. So there's a lot of noise going on here. This is not just a a little quiet discussion. No, they are arguing. They are shouting at each other, arguing with each other. It's it's a heated argument about this doctrine. And in the midst of all this, we read that the scribes who are aligned with the Pharisees, they arose and they speak up in defense now of Paul. Read on in verse 9. It says, And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So in the midst of all this, these scribes now speak up in defense of Paul. 
we read that they arose and strove. The word strove there means to fight fiercely. And so they now rise up and they're fighting fiercely on the behalf of Paul. They're defending Paul. That's a sudden change of events, isn't it? And now they're defending Paul and they're fiercely doing so. There is a suggestion there that there may even be blows happening here. There is a fight breaking out here. You see, this is a, a very heated argument, isn't it? That's taken place. And now the Pharisees are suddenly defending Paul. And they declare here that they find no fault in him, no evil in him. And they defend the possibility. They say if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, well, who are we to argue with that? And their recommendation here is that they don't fight against God. He says at the end of verse 9, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So if, if this has happened, let's not fight against God and what God has revealed to Paul. You know, this is reminiscent of what Gamaliel said back in uh, Acts chapter 5, 20 years earlier. Just go back there, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, and just read verse 38 with me. Oh, we'll start in verse 37. It says, after this, man arose, uh, sorry, after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them, uh, sorry, let them alone. For if this counsel, all this work, be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. We have Gamaliel. That, you know, we talked about Paul being taught at the feet of Gamaliel. Here's Gamaliel. He stands up in the Sanhedrin and he makes this declaration. He says, if it's of God, we can't fight against it. And basically, that's the same thing here. Okay, the scribes here, the Pharisees, while they didn't agree with Paul, they're standing up and they're saying, well, if an angel or spirit spoke to him, if he saw someone resurrected well who are we to argue with paul who are we to fight against god as we read on now in verse 10 we see the dissension intensifies it says in verse 10 and when there arose a great dissension the chief captain fearing lest paul should have been pulled in pieces of them commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle Basically, it continues to intensify, this argument. To the point now where the chief captain, he fears for Paul's life. He fears that Paul is going to be be killed by this mob. And so he quickly intervenes. You know, this is the third time that this captain has intervened to save Paul's life. It's the third time it's happened. He grabbed him in the midst of the temple. He took him away quickly on the steps. And now he comes and takes him away from the Sanhedrin. And we're told here that he feared lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them. The idea there is that it seems that Paul now is in the midst. He's got his supporters on one side and the Sadducees on the other, and they're basically fighting over Paul. That's really the idea here. He's in the midst of this mob of men shouting and arguing with each other. And it seems like they're going to pull him apart. Now, the situation is quickly becoming violent. And so the chief captain commands his soldiers to go down and bring Paul into the castle. You know, once again here, we see the Romans being used by God, don't we? This Roman captain is used by God to spare Paul's life. You know, it's an apt illustration of Paul's 
teaching in Romans chapter 13 that the government is uh, the minister of God for our good. Go to Romans chapter 13 quickly. I think we read some of these verses the other week. Romans 13. In verse 4 there it says, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if they do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. Uh, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Verse 4 starts out by saying, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. You know, when governments fulfill their God-given responsibility and they uphold the law, they rule with justice then law-abiding citizens have nothing to be afraid of, do they? And that's what Paul says in verse 3 there in Romans 13. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to, e- but to the evil. Wilt thou them not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Now Paul speaks about that very fact. If you abide by the law, then you have nothing to fear from a good government. And you know, up until this point, this has been Paul's experience at the hand of the Romans, hasn't it? They have been used by God to protect him from injustice. You know, they have upheld the law much better than the Jews. They've done the right thing. And God has used them to protect and save Paul's life. And so Paul now finds himself once again back in the fortress, the castle. He's in a jail cell. And it's then that we see the Lord now comes to him and gives him a word of encouragement. And that's our final point this evening. We see the assurance from God. The assurance from God. Let's go back to Acts 23 and read verse 11. It says, In the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. You know, we can imagine that after the events of the last couple of days, Paul is probably feeling a little shaken. He's probably feeling a little unsure about what his future is. You know, he'd barely survived three attempts on his life in just a couple of days. You know, it seemed like everything that he did failed miserably. Everything he tried in Jerusalem ended in disaster. You know, you think about it. He'd gone to the temple in the first place. Why? Because he was trying to bring unity to the church. And so he's going up there to make sure the Jewish Christians understood that he wasn't against the customs and traditions of the Jews. And that resulted in a riot, didn't it, in the temple? You saw the, the Jews from Asia, they accused him and there was a riot that came and they beat him. And then Paul is he's arrested and he's going up the steps to Fortress Antonia and he turns and he witnesses to the crowd. And what happens? They respond with even more anger at the Apostle Paul. And now as he stands before the council and he gives them the truth of the resurrection, what happens? He has to be rescued yet again because they respond in anger. You see, it seems like everything has failed miserably, doesn't it? It seems like everything Paul did in Jerusalem has been an art of failure. And he finds himself now once again in a jail cell, wondering if indeed his life is about to come to an end. You know, one commentator wrote this. He said, by now Paul was feeling the effects of the beating by the mob, the arrest by the soldiers, and the violence of the Sanhedrin. He was surely physically and emotionally drained. You know, if there was ever a time in Paul's life that he needed some encouragement, it was now. He needed some encouragement from the Lord. And, you know, God doesn't disappoint, does he? The Lord doesn't disappoint. 
right now when his servant Paul needs him, the Lord appears. It says in verse 11, it says, And the night following, the Lord stood by him. Right when Paul needs him, there's the Lord standing by him. And the Lord speaks and gives Paul these much-needed words of encouragement. He starts out there, the Lord says, Be of good cheer, Paul. Those words, be of good cheer, they mean take courage. Take courage. Now, the wording in the Greek is, is a present active imperative, and so it means it's a command. The Lord here commands Paul to take courage. He says, Paul, arm yourself with an ongoing attitude of courage. You know, it's interesting that throughout the New Testament, the only one who ever commands us to be of good cheer is the Lord. The reason is no one else can command you to take courage. Only the Lord can, because only the Lord has the divine power to impart courage, doesn't he? You see, the people of God can always take courage in times of difficulty because he is with us and he will see us through. And in essence, that's what the Lord is saying here to Paul. When he says, be of good cheer, when he says, take courage, he's saying, Paul, remember, I'm in control. That's where the courage comes from, isn't it? That's where his source of courage comes from. It's the fact that God is in control. And then he goes on to assure Paul that as he has testified of him in Jerusalem, he's now going to do at Rome. See the end of verse 11 there. It says, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now, in this statement, there are two encouraging points. The first is that his work in Jerusalem wasn't a failure after all. You notice that the Lord commends him for his testimony in Jerusalem. He says, as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem. There's no hint here of rebuke here from the Lord, no reproach from the Lord. Rather, the Lord encourages him. He says, you've testified of me here in Jerusalem. The Lord commends him. And so immediately Paul understands his work hasn't been a failure, has it? Hasn't been a failure. He's done what the Lord asked him to do. He's, he's testified of the Lord. You know, it reminds us that even when we, sorry, it reminds us that when we serve the Lord, you know, the results always are not going to be readily seen, are they? There's going to be times when we're serving the Lord and it seems like everything we do fails. From a human standpoint, it seems like we're getting nowhere. But you know, if we are faithful, that's what the Lord asks of us. If we are faithful in our testimony, faithful in doing what the Lord wants us to do, then it brings glory to God, doesn't it? Regardless of the response of men, it's glorifying the Lord. You know, we may simply have been the ones to plant the seed. And someone else is going to come along and water and then someone else is going to see the fruits. We may simply be the ones planting the seed. And that's a bit like Paul here. He's done a lot of throwing out the seed and he hasn't seen much fruit, has he? He hasn't seen much return. You know, like Paul, we can take courage knowing that God is in control. And the second encouraging point here is that the Lord now tells Paul he's not finished with him. He says, Paul, I'm not finished. You're going to Rome. That's what he says at the end of the verse there. He says, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. You know, Paul could take courage from the fact that the Lord's purpose and work for him was not yet complete. There was more for him to do. And the Lord tells Paul here, he says, you're going to bear witness of me in Rome. You know, that had been Paul's desire for a long period of time, hadn't it? Go back to Acts chapter 19, just quickly, Acts 19. (coughs) 
In Acts 19 and verse 21, it says, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. This had always been Paul's desire, that after he'd been to Jerusalem, he wanted to go next to Rome. That was his heart's desire. He felt that's where the Lord wanted him to go next, and the Lord now confirms it. The Lord says, Paul, you're going to get there. Don't worry, you are going to get to Rome, and you're going to bear witness of me there as you have here in Jerusalem. You know, think about the comfort that those words must have been to Paul in the weeks, the months, the years that were to come. You see, Paul was now going to spend time in prison. He was going to spend time being delayed. He was going to be on the ship and be shipwrecked. He was going to be on the island. It was going to take an awful lot before Paul finally arrived in Rome. And all the way, Paul now had these words to rely upon, didn't he? Paul, you're going to bear witness of me in Rome. What an encouragement. <laughs> what, what encouraging words from the Lord that Paul could hold on to and know God's in control. Even though he kept facing all these trials, God was going to take him all the way to Rome. And, you know, the Romans were going to be the ones to do it. They were going to take him there, give him a free passage all the way. You know, like Paul, we can take courage from the fact that God is in control, can't we? God's in control. And, you know, just when we need him most, he always comes alongside, doesn't he? Just when we need him most, when we're at those lowest ebbs in our life, he is always there giving us words of encouragement and giving us the strength to go on for him. You know, we may not have visions today and actually see the Lord and hear the Lord speak to us directly, but we have the completed word of God, don't we? We have his complete revelation given to us. And so when those times of discouragement come and it seems like things are going against us, we turn to the Lord, we turn to his word. Spend time in the word, spend time in prayer, and the Lord will encourage us. The Lord will strengthen us for the work that he has for us to do. And we can be sure that Lord, the Lord will not fail us until that work is complete, will he? He's not going to fail us. He's not going to leave us. He's going to be with us right to the end, till the job is done that he's called us to do. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we thank you for his great faithfulness in testifying of you here in Jerusalem. And Lord, the the fact that, Lord, even though he went through all these, these trials, this, this suffering, Lord, Lord, every time he spoke of you, he was rejected. Lord, we know that you were in control. And, Lord, you came, you gave him those words of encouragement. And, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that even when we go through those trials, that you're right there beside us. Lord, we can go to your word, we can go to you in prayer and know that you will encourage and you will strengthen us and you'll be with us as we go forward and seek to do your will. And we pray that you help us remember these truths now in Jesus' name.